is that was conceived a couple of years ago with Cambridge University. I think I can confidently and um, cheerily say the greatest university on earth. Um, no, that's nice laughter. Uh, the idea was to um, work with all the faculties across the university to bring people who had the latest thinking across all of the subjects that are studied there. Increasingly, what we found is that the biotech guys are great and the economists are great, but the people who have delivered the most extraordinary insights into contemporary life and the future and the present are the classicists and the philosophers. So it's a very great pleasure for this discussion about what constitutes authority or trust uh, to welcome uh, an alumnus, the editor of The Independent, Chris Blackhurst, and a man I think whom you all know quite well, the professor, Simon Blackburn. Gosh. Uh, first words, it's always gosh. Um, I, I take it I can be heard. Right. Um, I thought I'd kick off um, and then lead into Simon. Um, uh, last night I was, um, I was staying in Brecon and um, I went for a walk and I was wandering around Brecon and I was looking at these great buildings. I don't know if you've been there, but there's a fantastic cathedral. Um, there are very old bank buildings um, lawyers' offices, and it's a very traditional, very normal um, market town, um, full of history. And when you walk around a place like that, and you can do that in Hay, you can do it anywhere in Britain, um, you sort of soak up the buildings and you soak up something else, which is all about community and society and authority, and these grand buildings. And you wonder... I, I found myself wondering, not for the first time, where, where has it all gone wrong? Um, I was brought up um, to believe in authority, to believe, to trust. Um, and my parents um, are of that generation where they wouldn't dare question a doctor. Um, they believe implicitly in the authority of the bank manager. Um, they believe totally. Um, they, they, they loved the BBC. Um, I'm just rattling off the mental list of all the institutions that have gone horribly wrong. And something has gone horribly wrong um, in our society very recently. Um, I keep trying to put a date on it. Um, I was city editor of the Evening Standard for nine years before I became editor of the Independent. And I was there throughout the crisis, and the crisis is still going on. Um, and where did it all gone wrong? What was it? What was it that caused banks to fall off their perch, to, call, to cause the press to fall off its perch? I mean, I was, I was brought up, um, same as my parents. My parents always told me that Britain was a place that was free from corruption. Um, I remember clearly as editor of The Independent, during, during the whole sort of Leveson inquiry, um, the news editor come running into my office one day, um, shouting at the top of his voice, they, they, they um, gave her a horse, they gave her a horse. And I said, what are you talking about? Who gave who a horse? And he said, the police gave Rebecca Brooks a horse. 
I said, what on earth are you talking about? The police gave Rebecca Brooks a horse. She, she was to the son, what were they doing? And he said, they gave her a horse. Turn your TV on. And, and sure enough, on TV, on Leveson, they were confirming that the Metropolitan Police had loaned the editor of The Sun the use of a police horse. And I thought, this, this country's gone completely mad. <laughs> and, and there was that element of feeling, uh, you know, the sort of sadness, really, that actually Britain is not free from corruption. I, was all, I always thought it was just the Freemasons and that was it. Um, <laughs> My father didn't get promotion as a teacher, and he used to come home and moan about the Freemasons and how they stopped him getting promotion, and what a sort of bitter old fool he was, that I thought. But now I realise it's much deeper, and, and something profound has gone wrong. And I've got two thoughts, really, uh, before I hand over to Simon. One is that I think the accepted version is that it's all about materialism. And, of course... The city editor of the Standard, um, I spent my time every day lunching and whining and dining with bankers who had this enormous sense of entitlement. And it's something I really don't understand where, and how that happened, where they believed that because they had a decent job at Goldman Sachs, um, they therefore had to send their children to... Marlborough or Harrow or Eton, they had to have a £2 million chalet in Courchevel. They had to have the yacht and everything else. And I was puzzled by this, this incredible sense of entitlement that drove them on and this sense of materialism and, and the whole greed is good culture. And that is to blame for a lot of this. The other thing I think is as well is that... Um, we ourselves have become more knowledgeable. Um, and if I go back to my parents, um, in their day, they didn't dare question authority. Um, if the doctor told them the diagnosis, they'd go away, and of course the diagnosis could be wrong. Um, now, we actually look at what might be wrong before we go to the doctor. Um, and we question the doctor because it's all there on the internet. And the internet has empowered everybody and given us enormous access to information that we never had before. Before, the only places we got it from, and if I go back to my childhood, um, there were only three TV channels, there were only two or three news bulletins a day, they weren't very long, um, there were newspapers, but that was it. There was nothing else. And now... I've got it 24-7, limitless information on anything. So now I'm thinking, and this is where I'll stop, now I'm thinking very sadly that Britain was corrupt all along. Um, we just didn't know about it. Um, and on that note, I'll hand over to Simon. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sh sorry, is this working? Seems to... I'm sure everybody in the audience recognises the things Chris has been talking about, and I certainly do, being part of that generation. Um, I'd like to pick up on the phrase greed is good um, because I think that is responsible for a lot of what we've seen. Um, I'll come back to the transparency issue and the knowledge issue in a minute. Um, I think the, uh, I mean the phrase greed is, greed is good is very strange when you think about it. Avarice was typically one of the seven deadly sins. Um, the last time I was here in Hay, I was talking about a rather different deadly sin, namely lust. Um, and in a little book I wrote about that, which 
um, some of you may have read. Um, I, uh, I, I took on the task of saying that lust was much better than it was usually given credit for. Um, so, um, so that was a kind of what, what the philosopher Nietzsche would have called a transvaluation of values, which sounds rather grand. It just means that something that was previously thought good is now bad, or something previously thought bad is now good. Um, greed is good is a very strange idea. Greed, avarice. Uh, has always been, uh, traditionally been, seen as a solvent of society, something that dis dissolves the bonds between people, dissolves the bonds of trust. Um, and I think it's important to think that, uh, of ways in which that happens, and ways in which it's obviously true. Um, the classic analysis of this, the academic analysis of this, um, is usually given by game theorists and economists in a thing called the prisoner's dilemma, which I'll just briefly talk to you about. Um, well, I won't briefly talk to you about it. I'll talk to, talk, talk to you about it at length. Um, <laughs> a, a prisoner's dilemma. You've probably all heard of the invisible hand. Um, Adam Smith is supposed to have said and did say that um, the uh, commercial world, the world in which a lot of people pursue individual self-interest in um, economic terms, uh, is one in which eventually the the good of the society rises. The invisible hand is the thing that bears up the good of society uh, on the back of a lot of people pursuing their individual self-interest. And often that's true. In many structures, that is true. Um, but there are cases where there's what I like to call an invisible boot. Um, that is where individuals pursuing their own economic or rational self-interest uh, can't coordinate. They can't get it together. Uh, and because of that, the social good is uh, destroyed or diminished. Um, standard examples might be something like, say, overfishing. Suppose there's a finite fish stock, um, and suppose, as is the case with the North Sea, say there's a lot of countries round about and they each have fishing fleets. Um, you can imagine that each individual minister of fisheries, or whatever it's called, the authorities, um, is pursuing the goal of getting as bigger quota for themselves as they can. Um, on the other hand, if they all do that, the fish stock is going to diminish and eventually disappear. So you need restraint. Uh, and there, in, th in that case, the, pursuit of the unbridled pursuit of individual self-interest by each country is going to lead to destruction, it's sometimes called the tragedy of the commons. Um, and, uh, and so the question is, how do you put in place mechanisms of restraint? Um, now, those are going to need trust. It's very, very difficult for democratic governments to um, put in place the structures and the uh, trust, the, the um, contracts or the, um, uh, um, the, the agreements uh, which they will then keep and which generate that kind of self-restraint. Um, because roughly everyone all the fishermen can argue, or all the ministers of fisheries can argue, look, either the others are going to uh, restrain themselves, or they're not. If the others restrain themselves, the fish stocks are going to be okay, so it doesn't matter how many I take. So I'm going to creep out at night and, and get, get, the, get as many as I can. But suppose the others don't restrain themselves, then it's absolutely lethal for me to restrain myself, because then all the fish are going anyhow, and I haven't got my share. Um, so each of them can argue in pursuit of their own self-interest uh, that they've got to really 
get out there and get as much as possible for themselves. And if they do that, we suppose the fish stocks decline. That's an example of a structure called the prisoner's dilemma. Um, and it's a very, very uh, caustic, uh, dangerous thing. It's going to have, we're going to get the same structure over climate change. It's going to be very, very difficult um, for governments to implement um, things like the Kyoto Agreement, uh, which of course failed entirely. Um, and the question is, how, how do you generate the motivations uh, which enable people to restrain themselves in the face of um, the, 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 uh, um, the incentives and the motives not to do so? So that's a very difficult thing. One thing that's going to make it very much harder is if the ideology, um, or the, that is the prevailing set of ideas that people uh, operate under and the ones to which they subscribe, um, have the greed is good um, sort of element in them. Um, I'd like to say something too about another mantra that uh, really started to, I know it's controversial whether she ever said it and so on, but the, the idea that there's no such thing as society, which of course is a kind of um, reverse side of the coin uh, to the greed is good idea. Um, I heard, some of you may know, that I'm sure a lot of you really intelligent audience, you, you all listen to Eddie Mayer at five o'clock on Radio 4. Well, I just caught the fag end of um, Eddie Mayer talking to a zoologist from Oxford who was talking about Mrs. Thatcher's baptism in the, in the view that there's no such thing as society. And apparently this happened because she was at a dinner in the Randolph Hotel in Oxford uh, with a bunch of zoologists, including, including Richard Dawkins. Um, and she started talking about society, and one of the zoologists, according to the Eddie Mayer story, said, oh, but there's no such thing as society, because zoologists basically like to think of animals as pursuing their Darwinian self-interest, trying to maximize the number of their genes in the next generation or maximize the number of their offspring. Very bizarre. I, mean, I have two children, and the last thing I want to do is maximize the number. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, <laughs> um, um, yes. I've always wondered about the Muslim idea of heaven. You know, you've got 72 virgins. Just think about it, two sixth forms for the kids. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, anyhow, apparently, she learned the idea that there's no such thing as society um, from a group of zoologists. And, of course, if you read Richard's Dawk Richard Dawkins' books, which were coming out at about that time, The Selfish Gene, um, the idea was that apart, perhaps, from a certain amount of motivation on behalf of your kin, your children or your sisters or whatever, um, people had no, bound, by, uh, no, no forces binding them to each other. Um, animals don't and people don't. That was the idea. Um, and the, the, um, in turn, the idea that drove the zoologists was hostility to so-called kin selection. Uh, there were various views that kin selection couldn't work. Um, it had to be individuals. Well, zoology's grown out of that, actually. There's now a tremendous consensus. Richard Dawkins is actually one of the last of the um, dinosaurs. Um, 
Um, but, but most Careful, of all... Careful, might be, it might be here. <laughs> I'm, pre I'm prepared to argue it. Um, <laughs> um, and um, uh, and zoology has become, uh, biology in general, has become very, um, very much more hospitable towards the idea of multi-level selection, selection for individuals, for groups of individuals, and this happens at every level, from the cellular level up. Uh, it's actually thought that you couldn't get... Uh, you couldn't get complex cells, the eukaryotic cell, unless you had a certain kind of cooperative sort of uh, um, bonding amongst elements in the, in the uh, biological soup. So, in fact, the, the whole ideology of those years, I think, was premised on a false, a false philosophical idea. It was an idea of what were the implications of Darwinian theory. There's a mistake about that. And this mistake, according to Eddie Mayer, fed through to the Thatcherite culture. And I think it makes a lot of difference. Um, my wife and I lived in the United States for 10 years, and one thing that always struck me was, if I was ever to fall seriously ill, I'd come back to the NHS. And the reason I'd come back to the NHS would be that I would trust that if I saw a doctor, uh, the doctor would be motivated by a desire to do the best for me, the patient. Um, and if you can't trust that, then you've lost an awful lot. In the United States, I dare say, they take the Hippocratic Oath and all the rest. Um, but on the other hand, the doctor's office is often, as it were, above the pharmacist in which the doctor <laughs> has um, shares. Um, it's, it's this kind of commercial arrangement that you get. Um, and when you've got that, you can't be sure that the doctor is activated solely by the desire to do the best for his patient. In other words, you can't trust him. Uh, now, I'm sure there are many trustworthy doctors in the United States, but the structure is one that makes it very much harder to be sure of it. And of course, if the doctor is trustworthy and does the best for his patients, then he risks the kind of fisherman's uh, the prisoner's dilemma, the paradox of the fisheries, the paradox of the commons. Um, that is, that he won't make as much profit as the doctor next door. The doctor next door, who directs his patients to the pharmacist in which he owns shares, uh, will become wealthier. Becoming wealthier, he will be able to gobble up the other practice, and the logic of capitalism takes over, and you get huge monopoly industries um, uh, in the place of um, a socially responsive and um, socially um, um, trustworthy uh, situation. So I think all that did happen. I'm sure that Chris is right, turning to a second point. I don't want to go on forever. Um, I'm <laughs> sure Chris is right, turning to a second point, that transparency um, means that we're more aware of corruption and of failures of trustworthiness. Um, I think that... Transparency, you'd think, might enforce trustworthiness because, you know, with the web out there, you'd think you'd learn when people fail. You learn more quickly and more about the, the fact that the Metropolitan Police gave Rebecca Brooks a car horse, no, a police horse. It wasn't a car horse. Um, and, um, and, yes, um, and so on. So you'd think that the internet and so on would, would bring an increase in trustworthiness. But, of course, that depends on what you read on the Internet being itself trustworthy. Uh, there's the old um, paradox of who shall guard the guardians, which 
when she was talking about this, and Nora O'Neill used to make much of, she made much of in her Reith Lectures in 2002 on trust. Um, and uh, you don't know who to trust on the internet either. Um, but anyhow, my main moral is that philosophers have talked about this a lot. Actually, I'll just mention one more philosopher, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, had a lovely example, not of a prisoner's dilemma. It's not quite the same structure, but it's very similar. It's now called the assurance dilemma or the assurance game. And this is one where you actually each do better if you do restrain yourselves, unlike the prisoner's dilemma where you do better if you snatch the extra that you can get because whatever the other guy does, you do better for yourself by cheating. Um, in, the, in the assurance game, you would do better if you were cooperative, but you can't be sure that the others are going to be cooperative. And that lack of assurance uh, brings about catastrophe. Rousseau's wonderful example of this was a stag hunt. Uh, you've got a wood, you've got a stag in it, and there's a number of hunters. And it's really, really good to, ca to catch a stag because there's a lot of meat on a stag. And if you're one of the hunters, you get your share of that meat, and that's splendid. Um, but the only way you can catch the stag is that each of you stands by the exit to the wood from which the, one of the exits to the, to the wood from which the stag may come, and you shoot it as it comes out. Um, now, if all people do that, then they'll catch the stag and they'll get the portion of stag, and that's the best for all of them. But can you be sure the others will stand at their positions? Well, unfortunately, there are hares about. Uh, and it's quite good to catch a hare. Um, it's not as good as having a portion of stag, but it's, it's okay. It gives you dinner. Um, now, uh, somebody can catch a hare by himself. These are fast runners. Um, um, so what will the others do? Will they be tempted to catch a hare and then leave the gap in the wood for the stag to escape? Or will they stand to their post and help catch the stag? Um, well, what are the others going to do? That depends on what they think we'll do. So it all depends on sufficient trust, sufficient assurance on the part of everybody that the others aren't going to be tempted to catch a hare. And sometimes it might work, and sometimes it might not. But What's quite certain is that you've got a greed, if you've got a greed is good culture, <laughs> you'd do best to go off and try and catch a hare, because basically it's going to be every man for himself, and you can't trust the others to suppose that you won't behave like that and then stand by their post. So it's a lovely structure, and again, it models an awful lot of social interactions. Um, but if there's one message that I'm going to leave you with before throwing it open to questions, it's that... Um, there's a lot of good to be got out of reading the philosophers on this, and um, a lot of the um, corruptions of ideology that we've seen over the last 30 years uh, had um, no reason to, to occupy the public mind as they came to do so. Thank you. Um, i just to say a few, few more things about greed is good and, and how, where, where everything's gone wrong. Of course, the phrase, the phrase was used in the film Wall Street, Michael Douglas. Um, and I remember speaking to the producers about that film, and they were really shocked that that speech, the famous speech that Michael Douglas makes, they thought it was really awful, um, and they thought it was going to be taken as a message by everybody. Unfortunately, Michael Douglas was then bombarded with fan mail um, by people in the States and elsewhere saying, that speech is fantastic, that speech is the mantra for my life. Um, <laughs> 
and it was really shocking. And I suppose what that says is that human behaviour uh, cannot be eradicated by, by, by anything. I mean, basically, um, we are all, as, as Simon sort of has, has suggested, I mean, we're all individuals and we all go about our, our individual um, self-aggrandizement. And um, another example, I've got two more that come to mind. One was, uh, one, one is to do with where do we go from here and how can we, how can we possibly regulate um, and how can governments get together and regulate and, and stop this sort of thing happening in any, in any sphere? Um, and the example I always, it always comes to my mind is that um, I remember being with a very senior banker um, on the eve of the 1997 election. And I was extremely excited. Um, I'm sure, looking back, several people in this room were that... We, it felt like Britain was about to change. There was a possibility of some huge change. I wasn't particularly Blairite or anything, but I felt that something was going to be swept away and change was happening, and that felt genuinely exciting. And I said to this banker, I said, are you looking forward to tomorrow? And he said, what's tomorrow? And I said, oh, it's the general election. And he was from Merrill Lynch, and he said, Chris, we're not interested in what happens uh, tomorrow here. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because Britain is just one place where we do business, but it's not, it's not where, we, where we're based. We have no, no, no lockers here. We're not British. Um, in fact, there's nowhere in the world where we really care that much about who wins an election. We're more interested in whether Indonesia is going to privatize its telecom business and whether we can get a share of the action. It's things like that that bother us more. And I've, I came away from that encounter really quite shocked, um, thinking uh, for the first time, and of course it's now got worse, that we have these, and you're seeing it with tax avoidance, I hesitate to say this in the Google big tent, it's probably about, about <laughs> crashing, crashing down on my head, but um, <laughs> at this point the mic will be turned off. Um, but we have these giant corporations that have no allegiance to anybody or anything. Um, apart from themselves and their investors, always the investors. And I remember going right through, writing through the banking crisis and very early on saying in the Evening Standard that you can't blame the bankers um, in a sense. You can't blame them for wanting to pay each other more money, wanting to reward each other for failure. That's human nature. Um, it's tough. They'd be tough people if they didn't do that sort of stuff. Very principled. But the people you can blame are the owners of the banks, the investors, because those are the people who really call the shots. Those are the people that they regard as more important. Um, and you saw it last week with the, with the people being wheeled out on tax avoidance, where they were telling the select committee that the people that mattered to them most were their investors, and their investors would not allow allow them to pay more tax. It was just bad business. And there was that. And then the other thing that uh, was always in my mind is that um, um, I was once asked by a um, quite well-known known business figure um, in the city who said, do you know anyone who can build a... Uh, um, I'm looking for someone who can, who can build a website. Our website's hopeless. 
and needs sorting out. Do you know anyone? He said, you're in the media, you must know people who can do this sort of thing, and you know, I'm a bit fed up with the people who have been wheeled before us, you must know someone. I said, well, as it happens, there's a friend of mine who is an internet genius. This was probably about six, seven years ago. He's an internet genius, um, and he, he could do that. And he said, well, send him along. So I rang up my pal, and I sent him along. And my pal um, wore, he wears shorts in the middle of winter and flip-flops, and, and he, looks like, well, he looks like a geek. He looks like somebody who's, you know, one of these films. He was a genuine geek. And, um, and so I introduced him, and I could see this chat. The other guy recoil. It wasn't quite what he was expecting, but nevertheless... He probably put it down to artistic genius and thought, I'll go along with this. And um, anyway, a few days later, he rang me up and said, Chris, that guy's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. He said, but look, I can't possibly use him. I said, why not? And he said, because when I asked him how much he'd quote, how much he'd charge, um, he said he'd probably charge about a thousand pounds. Chris. I can't go to the board with anybody less than 100,000. <laughs> so I said, well, why don't you pay me 99? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll just, we'll collect. And anyway, so I rang him up. I rang up my pal and I said, look, you've just lost an enormous amount of business here. And he said, have I? I said, well, ring him back and say you'll charge 100. And he said, but I can't. I said, oh, for Christ's sake. Look, ring him back and just say you'll charge 100. You charge 100,000 pounds to do their website. He said, but that's far more than we charge. I, I couldn't possibly do that. And, I, I mean, in, that goes to the heart of what's wrong in the city, where it, basically it's money, it's price, and it tells you everything you need to know. It tells you everything you need to know about my friend, which is why he's poor and living in South London in a in a house that is a million miles from the sort of houses that bankers live in. Um, but we've got ourselves into a, a, a terrible mess. And if I go, uh, and I will throw this open to questions in a minute, but if, I look at, if you look at all the examples um, where uh, we've had instances of corruption, and it's, about, it's always about a group, um, it's about a group of people who thought they had license to behave the way they did. And that's true of the bankers. It's true of MPs who were fiddling their expenses. Most people knew that MPs, some MPs, I was in the House of Commons in the mid-90s as Westminster correspondent for the Independent. And people knew then that some MPs were fiddling their expenses. But it's about people turning a blind eye. Um, and it's about, it comes back to this, this thing of human nature that if you, if you open the door slightly, then people will kick it open. And it's true of banks, it's true of MPs, it's true of, true of Jimmy Savile. Um, um, uh, all, these, all these cases are about... I, I actually don't believe the institutions themselves are endemically corrupt. Um, I don't. I've long since realised that Britain is governed by chaos and, and not corruption. I mean, I, I've... I'm absolutely certain of that the closer I get. Um, I've spent the last two months, uh, longer actually, trying to resolve the, the, the um, issues post-Leveson 
and dealing with Downing Street and dealing with the DCMS and dealing with, and I can tell you that, you know, the nearer you get to the heart of government, the more you realize there's absolute chaos. But they've got no ability to control and therefore you have individuals who take that as license and nobody's controlling them. Um, what we do about it, I don't know. And whether we need more regulation, we have, we're the most regulated country on earth. We've got more, our tax code is more complicated than India's, where you could say, well, in India, no one pays any tax. But, you know, we've got such an enormous tax code. You can't, I doubt if you could put our, our tax code, if you put all the volumes together, you would not be able to get, it would overflow this stage in size. Um, we've got regulations galore. Um, we've, uh, you know, we have more inquiries than probably any other country, more official reports. Um, so I don't know what the answer is. I, I, you know, I really don't. I'm, I'm at a loss. Um, whether we need more regulation, um, whether we need to be looking at the way we educate our children, um, I honestly don't know what the answer is. I'm sorry to be so. Maybe that's why I'm the editor of The Independent. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, on that note, I'll hand over to questions, if there are any. Um, if, if we go to the chap in the blue shirt at the back. You're the first with your hand up. Um, so of my sort of small reading of the of trust, there's there's two conclusions I read in, in terms of how you improve levels of trust. Um, one is the conclusion from game theory, which is that um, in order to get a more a society with high levels of trust, you've got to make sure you punish people who who break trust. So you know this is the regulation, the the media transparency, um, which is quite a it's, it's it's an interesting idea, but one that um, I think is it's definitely more interesting is a. Uh, there's a professor at Oxford called uh, Theodore Zeldin who says we've just lost the art of conversation. So the idea in, in cities, we don't talk to each other, we never find common ground, we never um, really we talk about it, we don't know people in, in, a, in our cities. I live in a block of flats, I don't know any of my neighbours. Um, which of the two of those options do, do you find more compelling, sort of regulation and, and governance or, or talking and, and conversation and going back, maybe? Yeah, well, one one of the one of the nice things that Rousseau said he was quoting Virgil actually actually is that those who, um, uh, uh, it, it's those who are acquainted with suffering who are sympathetic with those who suffer. Um, there's a quotation from Virgil along those lines, uh, and part of the problem I think is um, that if people don't talk to people who are made poor, uh, people who are suffering as a result of their greed. Um, if they only talk to each other in a sort of bubble in the city, or they only talk to each other in the bubble in the police or in the House of Parliament or wherever the corruption is endemic, uh, then they're in effect insulated conversationally from whoever they might be damaging. Uh, and if they're insulated from them, then they won't feel compassion for them or feel anything for them. They'll simply be off the radar. And I'm pretty sure this is what happens when you get things like the bankers' bonuses. Yeah. That's not corruption so much as just people locked into a mindset. I mean, we saw it, something of it in the um, American general election where um, uh, Mitt Romney um, let go a remark that showed that he thought that the median income in America was about $250,000 a year. 
um, which is about four or five times the actual figure. Um, and in fact, Polly Toynbee wrote a book in 2008 uh, which contained interviews with a whole mass of top high flyers in the city of London. And you'd think these were people who knew about the economy. What else do they know about? Um, and they made similar absurd guesses at what uh, um, some of them thought the higher rate of tax kicked in in Britain yeah, at 160,000 pounds. I mean, there's just absolutely no idea of the economy of the country they're supposedly running. I think that's true. Um, I live in a part of southwest London where... Um, unfortunately, I'm surrounded by bankers, and um, you, you hear their conversations, and they really don't see anything. In fact, they, they are hostile um, to the rest of society, who they just, they just do not understand why we do, do not appreciate them. Um, and it's true that if you, if you move... And I remember um, when I was at the Standard, I went to the, I went to the FSA at Canary Wharf to see them when Northern Rock was collapsing. And I went to Northern Rock, uh, to, to the FSA. We talked about Northern Rock, and then I had a lunch appointment. And the lunch appointment was a bank called, Le was across the, the, the wharf, and it, it was with um, Lehman. And it was the best lunch I think I've ever had in my life, um, uh, of a life of many lunches. It was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was like something, and, I remember sitting up there with these guys from Lehman, and they were looking down on, and they said, where have you just been? And I said, I've just been to the FSA. And they said, oh, they, they really don't get it, do they? And, I, and about, about two weeks later, Lehman collapsed. <laughs> and um, I, I think people are in this bubble. And if I go back to hacking, um, well, all these examples, I mean, Simon's right, that the, they're all about the sort of clutches of individuals. I mean, within journalism, um, within a certain type of journalism, it was well known, apparently, about hacking phones. And um, I, I don't know if you know how hacking... I mean, hacking started, we now think, because there was a, um, a salesman in South Wales whose phone collapsed, his phone broke, and he couldn't, he couldn't get... Um, he couldn't get a signal. His, his mobile phone crashed. He knew there was a message on his mobile phone to do with his work, and he really wanted it. So he rang up Vodafone. I think his name was Simon Knott from memory. Anyway, he rang up Vodafone, and he said to Vodafone, do you record people's voicemails? And they said, certainly not. I mean, good grief, we don't do that. And he said, well, they said, what's the problem? And he said, well, I know there's a message on my voicemail and I need it for my work, and I can't get a signal. I can't get through. My, the whole network's crashed. And they said, well, have you changed the code? And he said, what code? And they said, what sort of phone have you got? And he said, a Nokia, whatever it was in those days. And they said, well, this is what you do. You dial the number. You dial hash 333, then the number hash, and you'll get your message. And he said... Can anyone do that? And they said, well, yeah, if, you're not, if they've not changed the code, all you do is phone. You can don't do that. And he said, that's outrageous. This guy then rang the, the, the um, Daily Mirror news desk <laughs> um, to tell them how terrible this was. What, and they said, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, thank you very... And they said, uh, they said actually... 
tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll call you back. They never did. And um, he also, I mean, very sweet, it's completely true, he rang the sun as well. He rang the mirror, he rang the sun, and the sun, their response was the same. Gosh, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and he, none of these people ever called him back. And, um, and he also, um, I mean, it was sweet, really. He rang MI5 and Scotland Yard. He kept phoning people saying, this is outrageous. What an invasion of civil liberties. So what happened was the whole, a whole genre of journalists um, became aware that you could hack phones um, and do it very easily. And likewise, you know, in, in, with the Jimmy Savile case in the BBC, I mean, it's obvious that there were people in the BBC who knew what was going on, um, people around Jimmy Savile, um, and you get these groups of people um, who know what's going on. And how you break that, I don't know. Um, anyway, next, next question. Uh, chap here with me on the front row, sorry. Oh, oh sorry, one more. The, the, the examples you've, you've quoted have often been um, multinational um, economies, bankers and things of that nature. I wonder if the part of the problem is inherent actually in the democratic process, that, that um, isn't it inevitable that politicians, not, not because they're corrupt people necessarily, but because of the nature of their um, calling, is, are necessarily only bound to have a short-term interest. So if I was the Minister of Fishery, I would, of course, not want to ban fishing because I want to be elected. Yeah. If I want to um, have a high-speed train, you, you hear people saying, ah, that, how many marginal cons um, conservative constituencies mm. does it go through? Mm. So I just wonder whether, whether that this sort of short-termism, Greed is good, mm -hmm. or self-interest mm -hmm. is good, is just inherent in the democratic system. Do you see a, a yeah. conflict there? Yeah. So, I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the structure of political life makes it much harder for politicians um, to do anything other than act as, as it were, trustees for the self-interest, for their own self-interest, and that means the self-interest of the people who will vote for them. Uh, so it's, it's much harder for, say, as you rightly say, a group of uh, ministers of fisheries um, to make and keep an agreement uh, if they know they can get away with breaking it. There's no international policing force um, because their constituents will punish them for it. Um, so it's harder for them to do it in some respects than it would be for a tyrant. Um, tyrannies might make, find it easier to make uh, and keep contracts with each other uh, than democratic politicians do because the politician answers to a different constituency in a different time scale. Well, that's a very important point. Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, when you think about it. I mean, if you think about most of, most of the countries in the world, I mean, where they have developed infrastructures, more developed than ours, with grand rail schemes and grand buildings, and, you know, you start with North Korea, and, I mean, they are literally places where short-termism doesn't apply, so you're probably right. Um, it's certainly true... Um, in my experience, talking to politicians, that they cannot, they can never look beyond the next election, um, and they're not prepared to, um, whatever they say. I mean, right now they're obsessing with 2015, but you cannot get a politician, you will not get a politician at Westminster engaging with 2020 or 2030. They just don't do it, which is part of the reason why we're in this complete mess about airports in the southeast. It's not, I mean, we're having this row 
but it's a row that's not been, I mean, the row's been going on for years, and it's not resolved because nobody really wants to resolve it. There's no interest to resolve it. It just, it just carries on, and it is that short-termism. Thank you. Uh, a friend of mine's a policeman, was a policeman in the 60s and 70s, and when I asked if he regretted anything, he said the one thing was returning runaway boys to boys' homes, and they were terrified, and he now knows why it has worked out why they were so terrified they were being abused. And if we look back at the things that have shocked us, it's the direct cruelty to children in boys' homes, uh, the BBC, uh, the church. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me we've got a problem with large, powerful institutions, not just profit-making ones. Mm. The difference is if, if Tesco's had behaved in the same semi-organized, abusive way that the Catholic mm. Church had, mm. they'd be closed by now because we wouldn't shop there. Mm. We, do, we can at least vote with our feet. Yeah. So what, why do you attribute many of, so many of these problems to the profit motive rather than you know, more fundamental mm. problems mm. in human nature? Mm. Yes, well, I think, the, I think the examples we've been taking have been the profit motives, and I did, of course, talk at length about the greed is good culture, um, but I think you're absolutely right that the, um, the possibility of a sort of closed circle of people who know what's going on but don't wish to rock the boat, uh, and that can be, of course, misguided loyalty to you know, their friends or their colleagues or whatever. Uh, I think that uh, institutions are very good at developing misguided loyalty. They need loyalty. Uh, at least they probably need loyalty. Um, but of course that can be itself abused. Um, yeah, I think it's very difficult to know how you, um, how you cope with that. Uh, the, lady in, the lady in the middle with the glasses in her hand. Uh, call me naive if you like, but one of these things that all these organizations have in common, of course, is that they're all run by men. Um, uh, <laughs> Half, uh, the well, 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 half the audience clapped. <laughs> well, well, actually, this audience is full of men because in the other tent you've got a friend of mine talking about Jane Austen. But, the, um, <laughs> uh, uh, of course, one of the first things that Iceland did when they went into meltdown was elect a woman prime minister. I'd quite like you to comment on that. I, th I, <laughs> I, I, I stand to be corrected here. I'm not a, a current affairs geek, but um, didn't Ireland already have a woman prime minister? <laughs> a woman president. Mm. A woman um, president. Yeah, yes. I'm not sure. I mean, I remember, obviously, when the banking crisis began, Harriet Harman came out and said that if the banks had been led by, by women, it wouldn't have happened. Um, I think there is some truth in that. Uh, there's certainly a truth that men, men are competitive by nature, you know, you can smell the testosterone sometimes, um, and they are very aggressive. And uh, saying that, I've also met some ferociously <laughs> dragon-like women in the city. Um, I'm not sure if it's... I, I, I think that's too simplistic. I really do. I'm sorry. You were talking about the um, short-termism of democracy, yes? And I was expecting a kind of however at the end of what you said, because it could be interpreted as um, arguing for dictatorship, benevolent or not. So I'd like to hear your comment on that. Oh, yes, I didn't intend to argue for dictatorships. <laughs> I just said there might be one thing that they were better at than democratic politicians. Um, Yes, I, I, I mean, it would be very nice if one could think of an institutional structure that um, um, was, um, as it were, uh, worked within a democratic polity, 
a democratic uh, constitution, uh, and which gave the politicians the incentive to think in more long-term and potentially cooperative ways. Um, the difficulty is, uh, as Chris was saying, you know, if no politician will think beyond 2015, what do you do if you lengthen the, uh, the period of a parliament to 15, 20 years? Uh, then they probably won't think at all because um, because the the day of judgment is sufficiently far away, and we'd have very much less public control over what they do. So you can't go that way. Uh, on the other hand, if you go our way, you're going to get short-termism, and I doubt very much whether there's any institutional structure in the world that's managed to solve those problems. Uh, the um, chap chap here in blue. problem that it's nobody's job any longer to teach young people any sort of morality. It's not cool uh, talking about morality. Uh, and yet there's a very good case for uh, a secular mora morality. And I get an example of this. I was traveling in the Soviet Union before it fell. And I was talking to a scientist. Uh, and his mother lived in the remote, remote part of Kamchatka. And I said, well, why don't you get her out of there? And he said, because she believes that the only people living in Kamchatka are good people. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, because they were all pushed there by Stalin. And the only people who survived were those who were trustworthy and unselfish. All the others perished. Is, you know, that's the sort of teaching that we all need. Gosh, yes. that sounds like the subject for an article. I'm going to send somebody out there to, to find this colony of, of goods. Um, yes, yes, indeed. Well, I mean, the, the famous uh, saying, I, I don't think it was Ben Franklin, but it was somebody at the beginning of the American Revolution, um, that, you know, we must all hang together or we'll all hang separately. Um, and that, of course, is true in many circumstances. Only, only cooperation will save you. And... Um, Yes, I'm sorry that it's only in Kamchatka <laughs> and the <laughs> Siberian Peninsula that um, that that's, uh, that survives. Um, we'll take the chap here in the red shirt. Um, it, it's actually not only in Kamchatka or whatever whatever name it was. Sorry, um, you, you, sort of every comment that comes now ends with cynicism about human nature. Creed is about human nature, although at the same time we talk about uh, the Thatcher generation that have adopted that on a false premise. And yet, uh, on the opposite side of that, you give examples of where it works. You talk about your um, internet genius friend who, who is out there actually wanting to do things right, and wanting, wanting to do things properly. There are many, many individuals, millions of individuals and organizations out there who want to do things in a cooperative way, but we tend to ignore them. We, we don't even discuss them. We discuss this cynical view that we're all in this spiral downwards and we can't get out of it. But there are, the cooperative movement as a whole, for instance, has done very well by um, it, its values, apart from recently when it um, went into banking and, and the banking <laughs> part has failed. So yeah. perhaps that's a lesson there. But there are people, myself included, who work in a very cooperative manner and are very successful, successful in terms of cooperation working. Um, so there are examples out there, and we don't we ignore them in view of in favour of this cynical view that we're all doomed and in a spiral downwards, and it won't work. Perhaps your paper, The Independent, 
can do a, a piece on the cooperative movement and the resurgence of cooperation? Um, there's a certain truth in that. Um, there is a certain truth in that, and obviously it's a question I'm often asked, is why does the press, why do you always write bad news, um, which is a sort of extension of what you were saying, and we always concentrate on the scandals and the, and the crimes, etc. Um, they are actually what people are more interested in. Uh, we, we have written, we do write at length, as we have written at length about the co-op, about John Lewis, um, and there's only so much. I mean, you're right, my internet friend. Um, unfortunately, he's a one-man band, um, and there's bigger organisations like Google, etc., um, who who are more powerful and more compelling to write about. Um, I, I think when we get the stories, we do write about them. It's it's just it's just finding them. He said rather lamely. I I can see you shaking your head. Well, we don't. I don't start every day by saying we start the day. Let's write about bad news. Um, it's just the stories tend to be I mean we do write you know all papers all news all media organizations feature positive stories as well I mean of course we do um, but the ones that command the headline that work headlines that work up the emotions that get you angry um, and you are angry I can tell you're angry <laughs> um, are the ones are the ones about people not paying tax about people abusing children, uh, you, you know, those are the stories that are more compelling. Yeah. You're not going to get a headline saying, no earthquake in hay today. <laughs> <laughs> lady there who's got the mic. Hi, thank you. Um, a couple of years ago, I read a book called The Spirit Level, which is, mentions trust quite a lot. Uh, you probably know the book. It's about more equal societies, have better trust and better health and better education. And um, I just wonder, and, and obviously... To, to make those more equal societies, somehow we've got to accept that people at the top earn less or have higher taxes. So how do we go about uh, bringing about that change that actually goes along with the guy from the, the cooperative movement is in, on exactly the same page as this? So have you got any comment? Well, I think, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that the accelerating inequalities in, say, the United States and Britain are pretty pretty terrible. I think the average CEO of an American company now earns something like 280 times uh, the shop floor uh, median wage. Um, in Japan, the equivalent figure is 16. And I think in Denmark, it's probably less than that, and Scandinavia. Um, so that accelerating inequality has been appalling. And one thing government can clearly do to try to level it out a bit is to um, tax higher at the higher ends. and. Um, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't be particularly uh, surprised at that or bothered by it. But there's this mantra that somehow that would destroy investment, it, all the multinationals would flee offshore, we'd lose all the bankers and think what a catastrophe that would be. <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, property prices would return to normal in London. Um, so we can't have that, obviously. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we were talking about this in the office the other day. That the, um, we can't remember the last time the Prime Minister um, uttered the phrase big society. Um, he did when he was the first elected. Um, I don't think we can find any other cabinet minister who's ever used that phrase. Um, George Osborne certainly not used it. Um, and it's interesting because he did seem to have something. Um, and I was, quite, I was quite excited by it. I thought I could really get that. Um, gosh, this is a conservative prime minister who's espousing something called a big society. And we all sort of knew what that meant, but um, cynicism kicked in, I'm afraid. Um, and it wasn't just us. I mean, we quite like it to work. The independent, we quite like it to work. Um, but finding people around him, finding people at Westminster who will echo those views, uh, I'm afraid it's just been swept aside. It does. That's true, that's true. Right? Yeah. Um, chat here. Thank you. Looking across the world, where would you say, uh, in which country is, is the best or most appropriate system of government? And can you talk to us about the benefits of that uh, type of well, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Kamchatka and try and get away with it. Kamchatka. Um, um, we could start with North Korea. They seem to. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think um, perhaps Brecon Town Council or. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean I'm a, I'm a, I, I know the book The Spirit Level, and I'm a great fan of the Scandinavian societies that seem to have gone furthest in implementing it. Um, I mean, if you look at things like the way Norway. Uh, treated it, its oil sea, uh, uh, its North Sea oil revenues, compared yeah. to the way the United Kingdom did, um, you you see both long-termism and social cooperation much more firmly in the saddle than they were here, and that's highly enviable, and they've been very successful as a result. Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland—they um, seem to have a, a kind of civilized cooperative. Um, atmosphere or, or ideology in a way that it's been lost in the UK and lost in uh, America. I'd like to say one thing actually, just pick up a point that was made earlier about whether it's a change in transparency or a change in ideology or ethos. Um, and I, I do want to, you know, I mean our brief was to talk about, you know, the catastrophes that befall us, but I'm well aware that the, as the gentleman in red pointed out, that um, there's, a, there's a lot of quiet, good, trustworthy behavior going on in many, many places and many, many groups. Um, but if you look at, for example, what the American Business Bureau, it's, it, it issues every 10 years or so, or every 12 years, a, a sort of manifesto. In the 1970s, it would say that a corporation, that's American for a company, um, owed a duty to the society it, it's worked in, the stakeholders, the uh, employees, and these are duties, including duties of trust. Um, in, by about 1997, the equivalent document said uh, a corporation owes no duties except to its stockholders. Mm. Um, it was purely a duty to the owners. All the other 
um, relationships it had could go hang um, so long as the stock price was protected and went up. Um, we've got time for one more question. Um, oh, everyone's, um, I'll take the lady, lady in the middle in the, with the scarf round. Yep, yep. Hi. Um, I have a, a just general question, but I just wanted to preface it by the idea about morality being taught to the younger generation, because I started doctor training in the United States, and I can tell you that the older generation of doctors were much more what you were saying about profit-driven, and actually the younger generation is not. And so the idea of the older generation teaching, teaching the younger generation morals, that would just be perpetu a perpetuation of the current morals that are problematic. <laughs> so, but my general question is a much more positive one, which is kind of similar, instead of governance structures, where have you seen successful structures for people being able, besides the cooperative, but on a national level, for nations being able to trust one another, or groups within nations being able to trust one another? Or have you not found any positive examples where that's actually worked? Um, I, I, in one of my books called Ruling Passions, I got a wonderful quotation, which I can only partly remember, from Gladstone. Um, he's talking about um, the treaty with Turkey, I think it was, or non-aggression pact, something to do with Turkey and Russia in about 1870. And Hudson reports him as saying, um, there is, of course, the obligation of the treaty, but I cannot subscribe to the view that has been held in this house that a country is obliged to act upon a treaty, whatever the circumstances in which it finds itself at the time at which it comes to implement it. In other, in other words, a treaty isn't worth the paper it's written on. Um, and that was this you know, monument of Victorian rectitude, the sort of tam diel of, um, uh, of, the, of the 19th century. Um, William Ewart Gladstone, and if he could say that, just think what other politicians are like. Um, I think we've got to stop there, unfortunately. We could obviously talk forever. Um, and I'm, I'm very sorry that papers are full of bad news. And I'll try and do my best, um, try and get some good news in. And um, Simon, I think, is going to be signing books now. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.